Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program today, mixed reviews looking back at the last four years. Financially speaking, we take a look at a new survey on how British Columbians are feeling about their bank accounts, their wallets, and how they are doing financially. That's coming up right after the 12.30 news. Also going to be talking to the incoming president of the Canadian Medical Association. Some new opinions when it comes to if we should have mandatory vaccinations for some professions. That's coming in the second hour of the program. We're going to talk about that today. And we have an etiquette expert coming on the show after the 1.30 news. Want to talk about etiquette when outdoors with more and more people heading to parks and beaches and enjoying the outdoors. How do you do it in a way that isn't offensive to those around you. And we're going to be taking your calls on that as well. That's coming up a bit later on in the program. Right now, though, we're talking more about a video that is extremely disturbing. It is horrifying to see what happened to two grandmothers and some children who were in a Surrey park. They then found themselves on the receiving end of a racist attack. Many people have viewed this video. It was posted to social media It shows two men yelling at the group in Aspen Park. It took place in Surrey over the weekend. So let's bring on our first guest to talk about this. Henry Yu is a UBC history professor. Professor Yu, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks for having me. Uh, This was an altercation, an attack. The video of this, what happened at Aspen Park in Surrey, has been shared. People are responding to it. When you see something like this, people having garbage thrown at them, having racist insults hurled at them, how do you respond to that? Unfortunately, this has uh, been a fairly common incident. And, you know, we've had others actually also videotaped, but uh, there's a lot of other assaults, verbal and even and physical, unfortunately, that have been happening really a lot over the last year and a half. Uh, there's been a kind of intensification and it hasn't been caused by COVID. I, I think people are mistaken if they think that that's, a, that's the, uh, the cause. It's, it's been catalyzed, you could say, um, by, uh, you know, the pandemic. But uh, anti-Asian violence, unfortunately, it's something that's um, intensified and re- and there's been a surge of it, but it's it's been something that we're we're unfortunately uh, too familiar with. So what is it? I mean, do we can we even try and figure out why somebody would think it's appropriate or think it's okay to throw garbage at somebody to go up to people sitting in a park and to do this to to unleash this mm-hmm. kind of behavior? I think you know one thing is to to draw out that it's it's. You know, if we're just looking for these individuals and saying, what's wrong with you? There's something that they're a broader symptom of. Um, so, for instance, one of the patterns we've seen again and again is, in fact, who is the target of these kind of incidents? It's, it's often the most vulnerable. Um, so elders, seniors, um, the majority of, of the assaults that we've had reported were against women and against uh, people who were really perceived to be vulnerable. And so what we've got is a kind of bullying behavior that actually seeks out someone who can't fight back, um, seeks out people that the person who's um, and the groups, uh, sometimes it's multiple people, think that won't fight back. So, so really, you have to ask yourself, what's going on in the psychology of sort of racism and white supremacy 
Um, and I would say that, you know, again, I don't mean to psychoanalyze individuals. It's more about what's the structure of the long history of racism and white supremacy in British Columbia, right from the beginnings of British Columbia. And, and that's really kept uh, up. And I think one of the things is it's not actually, even when people say there are a set of people who are inferior. So people think of white supremacy as uh, others who are non-whites are inferior. Um, that may be the rhetoric or what's said, but really it's often around a fear, a fear that in fact there's an inadequacy um, and that the success of others is at your expense. And so um, how that plays out in this incident is that why the focus on language, like on speaking, those, those, you know, many of the people come from other places in the world, they can speak English, but we denigrate those who speak with a quote accent um, and that don't speak proper English or I can't understand you. What is going on behind that is actually a fear of multilingualism. It's a fear of people who can speak English and one, two, three other languages. Because we know that, of course, it's more useful to be able to speak lots of languages. And so the colonial sort of white supremacy of British Columbia is founded upon the inadequacy of only being able to speak English. And so what we do is we say, well, you have to speak English and only English the right way. And we will valorize that and make it seem like it's inferior for other people to speak multiple languages. Uh, it, it actually flies in the face of any logic and anything we, we, we can immediately realize. Of course, it's better to speak lots of languages. You can talk to more people. You can do more things. You can understand multiple languages. In other parts of the world, that's the norm. Why is it in a place like British Columbia, we denigrate someone for speaking multiple languages because they're English? is inferior because they're accented. We use that term actually to mark out that you've spoke another language before you learned English and therefore you're inferior to me who grew up and only spoke English, but I speak it the right way. Mm. And so if you notice what is, what is being used, weaponized against people in this kind of bullying behavior, it comes out of a fear, really a fear of inadequacy that leads people to want to take it out on the most vulnerable and so it's almost like a need to prove, you know, that my doubts about, you know, whether I can, you know, you know well, I'm a bit of a loser, really. There, there's something actually sad and pathetic, I would say, about the origins of the desire to bully others who are vulnerable and pick on them for not belonging. And in fact, reinforcing this idea that I'm going to choose something because I feel threatened. I, I want to scapegoat someone for my fear. I want to take it out on someone else, and I don't want it to be a fair fight. I want to pick on someone vulnerable. Um, I want to pick on who I perceive, you know, women are more vulnerable, elders are more vulnerable, children are more, more vulnerable. And so, as I said, there, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know these people, but there is something sad and pathetic about what they're doing. And uh, it's almost like, you know, I, I feel, I, I'm sure the women were terrified uh, who were being attacked. I'm sure the, you know, those kids, they're going to learn a lesson that's perhaps a terrible lesson to learn, which is that maybe they right now can speak in, you know, Punjabi or, you know, another language with their grandmother. And maybe one of the terrible lessons is, oh, maybe I should learn to speak English so the people like that won't pick on me or my grandmother anymore. And that's, and that's about the violence and the violent lessons that racism and white supremacy actually create, which is 
you know, out of weakness, you're going to bully someone to make them conform so that they don't make you feel bad anymore. And, and in the end, the loss is going to be huge, I think, for, uh, I feel for um, the women and the grandchildren who are, who are actually at the receiving end of that. And, and yet I also feel a pity for the, the kind of uh, self-inadequacy, uh, you could say, that led that group of, of um, mostly men to, uh, to do that. Continuing now with Professor Henry Yu at UBC, we're talking about the racist attack that took place in Aspen Park in Surrey this past weekend. Uh, Professor Yu, you were talking about how you can see how somebody could feel inadequate, could feel angry, but how do we go from someone having those feelings to a place where they think it's okay to throw garbage at elderly women and that it's okay to threaten them? Well, and I think that's the thing. Anger is, is not a bad response. I mean, anger is, I feel angry too. I mean, it's, it's really difficult to watch that. Um, and yet we know it's happening, you know, now fairly frequently and commonly. Um, and I think to deal with the root causes is A, to both help those who are at the receiving end so that they don't take the wrong lesson from it. Um, as I said, if you, I really think about those children and how are we going to talk with them and, and deal with the impact. Like with bullying in school, you know, often there's a kind of traumatic long-term consequence and impact that goes well beyond that incident itself. And so um, as, having, as being someone who, you know, I grew up here too. I've, I've, I was born here. Uh, I've had... I've been on the receiving end of things like that. Uh, quite a few people who are non-white have, can point to incidents in their lives. And if you if you can't, then then you're lucky. And I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you haven't had to deal with it. But for many of us who have had to deal with things like this, I think that's the first. Is what kinds of support, uh, just like if you, if you have kids bullied in school in any way, what kind of support can we provide so this doesn't create a, a, a lifetime of negative impact? And then for those who feel the need to do this, uh, I think that is a tougher question because, as I said, that is both about the individuals and what sense of inadequacy and weakness and, and a fear of thinking that they may be losers in life and therefore they have to assert that they're going to win on this one. There's no way they're going to lose if they pick on these most vulnerable people. That is something that's a deeper, harder question because why they're picking on South Asian women, why, why anti-Asian violence, why anti-Indigenous violence, why the particular forms of racism that this produced, who gets targeted and why. I think that is something that is a broader structure of, of the way that we still actually, unfortunately, think about what problems are that are societal, why we end up thinking that unaffordable housing is the fault of Chinese or, the, or you know, COVID is the fault of the Chinese or fault of East Asians. And, um, and that has to do with how we deal with problems as a society and how we need to make sure that when people see change that scares them, that in fact, they're not allowed, that our, that our media coverage doesn't uh, foment and amplify those fears and, and, you know, say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. That is the reason why you're feeling fear. Um, and I think that's what we've seen over the last five to 10 years, unfortunately, is, is sometimes in social media in particular, an amplification 
that reinforces that your fear is okay. Your fear is your right to target this group because they are at fault. And, and unfortunately, with the rising economic and political power, say, of China, um, I think that it's going to become easier and easier for people to just conflate problems with, well, it's because China is strong. And therefore, if I see someone who I think is Asian or India, well, there's, there's a problem of, of too many Indians, too, too many people from Asia. Too. And that idea that we're too Asian has to do with the normalcy of building a society around white supremacy, around the idea that to be a normal Canadian is to be a white Canadian. And therefore, the fears that if you are Canadian and, and you identify as being white, that your fear is normal. And you can, you can enact that on others, that you can, you can play out your fears by, by bullying, by targeting and scapegoating and saying it's the fault of others. Um, if you don't feel these fears, I don't think you feel the need to go out and harass a, a set of, you know, elderly women who are with their grandkids and just enjoying the park. I mean, what leads people to need to do that? It's really a, a perplexing question. Yeah, it is. And I certainly don't know the answer. I just want to ask you one more question. What can we do? As you said, there are some platforms where it's kind of, I don't know, even justified. I was horrified when I heard this story. I know a lot of people were horrified. What do we do as far as putting the message out there that this isn't okay? Are there tougher penalties? I know there have been calls for for this these people to be banned from the park, the, the people that did the attacking. How do we actually address this? And, and like you said, stop it from happening again. I do think that, you know, when people uh, do things that threaten others, that there there ought to be social consequences. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate about, you know, is this, is this the same as any other assault? Is it worse? Uh, is it, um, I, I think there's a lot of discussion about, you know, and quite rightly, about do we need to be more um, forceful in basically saying that socially this is unacceptable and what kinds of consequences should result? Certainly no consequence to this kind of behavior is not an answer. And you can say for too much of our history, uh, it's it's been written off as, well, yeah, they're right. You know, yeah, even though they went a little too far, you know, we've had riots in the city. It's like, okay, they went too far, but the idea was right, that really Asians are a problem, you know, whether it's the 1907 riots or or really, as I said, even the, in the last five, ten years, sort of the scapegoating for housing unaffordability. It's like when we turn the other turn a cheek, unfortunately, to this, um, what we're also doing is condoning it. And so, yes, I think we need to talk about what kinds of social consequences of this kind of behavior, just like any bullying, um, you know, bystander awareness, uh, you know, the also, again, taking care of those who have had to go through it. And making sure we don't have just resources, but standing by them or supporting them or, or amplifying that what they went through is inappropriate. Um, and so there, there are lots of ways. Um, you know, I, I'm, I can only uh, suggest that uh, this is not going to go away, unfortunately. And, um, you know, it's a broad problem, anti-Asian racism, but also the other forms of racism, really, that we're seeing 
um, perhaps more of. And yet there are many of us who, who do know, because we study this, it's been around for a long time. And so it's, it's going to take a lot of effort collectively uh, to find a, a whole array of solutions, some of which deal with, you know, people like those who uh, perpetrated this uh, in Aspen Park, but also a way of also helping those who don't understand what happened. I'm sure that the women uh, in the park and the, and the kids, they're bewildered by this because they have no idea why this happened. That is also something we should be dealing with better, which is um, to understand actually our society as, as some, a place that produces this with some regularity. And denying that is actually making it worse because then it leads to even more bewilderment and more surprise. Um, I, I don't want to say that I'm, this kind of stuff doesn't surprise me anymore, it, but it's true. It doesn't surprise me anymore. And, and that's actually sad and unfortunate in its own way. Well, let's take a look at how British Columbians are responding to questions about how they are doing when it comes to making ends meet and how they're feeling about their finances. Some of the questions that Research Co. has been asking people and the president of Research Co., Mario Canseco, is with us to talk more about this. Mario, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Welcome back. Uh, thank you. Uh, what have, were you asking people? Uh, this was a survey, I believe it was 800 adult British Columbians from July 17th to the 19th. What did you ask people? Well, we wanted to uh, get a sense of how they felt about the first four years of the BCNDP government. Uh, they just observed their four-year anniversary of the original coming into a, a power after the coalition deal that they made with the Green Party but also trying to make sense about other issues that maybe British Columbians are eager to solve. Uh, We know that we had an election last year in October that was essentially a referendum on the way COVID-19 was managed, and the NDP ended up coming out of that election with a stronger majority. Uh, But now what we see is definitely a sense of eagerness from British Columbians to deal with some other things, particularly housing, which remains the number one concern. So when you asked about housing and concerns about housing, what did you get or what did you hear from people? Well, we wanted to uh, check a couple of things uh, related to cost of life. Uh, And we see that there's uh, 59% of BC residents who say that it's now considerably or moderately harder for them to make ends meet. Uh, So it really starts from a question of uh, what you can pay for when you compare it to other things that you were able to do four years ago. We have uh, an astonishingly high number, 74% of BC residents who say that buying a house is now harder than it was four years ago, and high numbers who also believe that saving money for retirement, paying for post-secondary education is now more complicated. And that definitely plays a role in the way we feel about housing. When we ask British Colombians, compare it to four years ago, is housing in the province better, the same or worse? Uh, 71% say that it is worse. So. Uh, really, it has been difficult for the government to establish an emotional connection. Uh, there's a very interesting dichotomy at play here. We have very popular housing taxes that were brought in by the BCNDP government, particularly to address the situation related to foreign owners. But we still have uh, more than 7 out of 10 residents who say this isn't really making a dent. This isn't really helping people like me get into the market. And so I guess, is it calling them out or saying we thought these taxes were going to make a huge difference and disappointment that they're not? Well, there's certainly a sense of disappointment and it's happening 
uh, with all groups. You know, we always talk about millennials feeling left behind when it comes to the housing market. But the criticism is also coming from people age 35 to 54 and age 55 and over. Uh, what this really tells me is that we might be heading into a couple of years of resetting the situation politically. You know, we know that the BC Liberals are going to be finding a new leader in the next few months. And um, right now, I think what we see is a government that says we're happy with the way we handle this COVID-19 pandemic. The public knows this, but now they're looking for action on other fronts. And when you compare the way people feel about things right now with the way they did four years ago, the changes really haven't been happening at the speed that they expected. And I know you've asked Canadians about this as well. So how did the responses in this newer poll asking British Columbians compare to, I think it was in June when you asked Canadians about this? Well, there's definitely a sense uh, that housing is unique to British Columbia. Uh, We don't see the level of concerns with housing, homelessness, poverty that we see here in British Columbia in other jurisdictions. It also plays a role in the way the federal election that is expected to be called in the next couple of weeks uh, is going to play out, uh, particularly because we see the environment climbing as an issue in places like Quebec. We see healthcare also climbing as an issue in Ontario. Uh, in Alberta, it's all about economy and jobs because they've had a tougher time dealing with COVID. Uh, but here it's essentially housing. So we're heading into a federal election campaign that is going to be different. Part of it is going to be a referendum on COVID-19, which is what Justin Trudeau's liberals want to, to, to do. Um, But there's going to be more discussions about housing because we haven't really seen this issue dropping. You know, we go through ebbs and flows. We go through moments when the economy is high. We go to moments when healthcare is high. But housing, homelessness, poverty consistently since the year 2014 has been the number one issue here in British Columbia. You also asked people about public safety. And how did British Columbians respond about how they're feeling about public safety? Well, this one was a bit of a shocker. You know, we were hoping for the numbers uh, to be, you know, closer to uh, saying that the situation hasn't really changed on many of these topics. But we have 48 percent of British Colombians who believe that public safety is worse now than it was four years ago. It climbs all the way to 52 percent with people aged 55 and over. Now, this is an important matter because this is a group that usually votes more in elections. They are starting to feel a little bit left out when it comes to this particular policy. The numbers are also quite high in southern B.C. at 52 percent and in Vancouver Island at 56 percent. So it's an issue that can definitely be in the minds of residents, particularly with all of the um, stories that we've been exposed to related to the gang war. So, you know, it's not a situation as bad as it was back in 2010, but certainly more British Colombians are noticing that uh, it's starting to get out of control. When you ask people specifically as well about the premier, and I'm always curious how people are are feeling and how people voted in in the first place. So if you voted, I guess, NDP in the election, how are you feeling about John Horgan as premier? If you didn't vote NDP, what kind of a sense did you get on, on the leadership of John Horgan at this point in his government? Well, it's really curious. You know, I've had the opportunity to ask about different premiers over time. And British Columbia is unique in the sense that we don't really vote people in. It's usually somebody who comes in because people are tired of the government that we have. Um, it's something similar to what, to what we saw with Gordon Campbell back in 2001. And we have 50% of British Columbians who say that Horgan has performed about the same as they expected. 20% who say he's been better, 19% who say he's been worse. So this is consistent with the way British Columbians tend to feel about leaders. 
Uh, but when it comes to specific accomplishments by John Horgan, uh, a third say it's too early. He's only been there for four years. We don't know exactly how it's going to go. 26% believe he has accomplished little. And this takes in the political allegiance into uh, the, uh, the, the, the numbers. You know, 37% of Green Party voters and 42% of VC liberals who say, I don't think he has done as much as we thought he was going to be doing. So very complicated matter, particularly as we're heading into the next election. It's still three years away. Uh, and it's um, definitely a time for the NDP to try to reconnect with people. There's a sense that the votes that happened back in 2020 were there because of the COVID-19 management. But by the time the next election rolls around, many British Columbians are going to start to question, what did we get out of all of this? And are we solving all of the other problems that are not related to the pandemic? Uh, do you think, too, the last vote was in response to the fact there was a pandemic? And even though people may have been angry that there was a campaign and an election during a pandemic and one that didn't stick to the election, the fixed election date, uh, lo- there wasn't really a strong alternative. There wasn't really anywhere else for people to go. And, th- and that kind of all kind of led to the, re- the results that we got. I think it's definitely part of it. You know, the the. There's a difficulty, then, and I think we saw. I think we saw that throughout the entire campaign. There was a, a difficulty for the BC Liberals to establish an emotional connection with voters. Andrew Wilkinson was probably not the best person to handle a campaign of that magnitude at that particular time, and that definitely plays a role in the numbers that we saw. Particularly because the BC Liberals lost in strongholds. Uh, you know, very few people would have imagined Mary Paul like losing. And it's not because the Conservative vote took away from what she could have gotten as a BC Liberal candidate. Uh, the district that used to be Rich Coleman's district was also lost to the NDP. So there was a sense of connection because of how the pandemic was going. But there was also not a lot to look into when you were peering at the opposition. It will be different the next time, especially if the BC Liberals decide to find a fresh face and somebody who can connect on the housing file at a higher level than what we saw from Andrew Wilkinson. All right. Anything else stick out for you as surprising or what you weren't expecting in this poll that I didn't ask you about? Well, one thing that is quite crucial is we haven't really seen a dent when it comes to the way people feel about their own affordability. Uh, We've been tracking some of these questions for a while. And, you know, people might say I saved on gas because I wasn't driving and I was working from home. But they still say that it's very complicated to do certain things that are meaningful milestones in our lives. Buy a house, save for retirement, pay for education. All of those things really haven't changed over the past four years. All right. Interesting findings. Mario, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for joining us and sharing this with us today. My pleasure, Gil. Anytime. Thanks for being with us today. Well, the Canadian Medical Association, as well as the Canadian Nurses Association, groups representing physicians and nurses right across Canada, have joined the call for mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for healthcare workers. This is because of the mounting concerns over the COVID-19 variants, as well as the leveling off of vaccination rates in some parts of the country. And joining me to talk more about this now is Dr. Catherine Smart, incoming president of of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This is a bit of a shift as far as the call for mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers or seeing more people come on board with this. What was it that shifted or what has led to your group joining this call? I think what 
what we've seen, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic, a huge uptake of vaccination by healthcare workers. We were fortunate to be prioritized early on, um, and that's overall gone well. But I think what we're seeing now with the variant, uh, especially the Delta variant, which is becoming more dominant across Canada, is the real risk of a fourth wave. And, and I think what's clear is we've gotten probably as far as the vaccine program as it stands and moving towards the mandatory vaccines. We're hoping we'll get us over that finish line and assure safety both for people working in healthcare as well as well as for patients who have that expectation of safety when they uh, enter spaces where they receive healthcare. And we think the right way to do that is to require COVID-19 vaccine for healthcare workers uh, to keep the health, work, health workforce safe, but most especially our patients. Have you had much response from healthcare workers about this idea? Overall, I think the vast majority of healthcare workers are in agreement with this move. I think, you know, being in healthcare, we believe in science and vaccination is clearly the way forward out of this pandemic. So what I've mostly been hearing from people is clear support as, as this as the way forward to get us to where we need to be. We've heard a lot as well, not only hospital settings and healthcare settings, but also specifically long-term care facilities where we saw such horrific conditions in some cases near the beginning of this pandemic. We've been talking to providers in this province. The last time we did, we found out in one case, in the one provider of long-term care in one of their homes, the vaccination rate for the workers was 53%. That was the lowest. And the highest was 80% in one of the other facilities. Why do you think there is this reluctance by some healthcare workers to get the vaccine? Well, you know, I think we have to be aware that work in healthcare represent a broad section of society, and there may be lots of reasons why there is hesitancy and concern. Some of these things are, you know, structural inequities that have existed, and particularly for people working in long-term care. Largely, they're underpaid for the work they do. Many of these folks have multiple jobs and multiple facilities to make ends meet, and they may have very real concerns, like what happens if I get some side effects and need to take a day off from work? What's going to happen? Do I have paid sick leave time? These types of structural barriers that really need to be addressed. Um, And I think, you know, when we're calling for something like mandatory vaccine, it needs to come alongside with calling for ensuring that employers put in place things that allow their employees to be vaccinated without those concerns. One of the other concerns when we were talking about that was if th- that the reluctance specifically for long-term care to go down the route of mandatory vaccines was it could potentially then lead to vacancies. If people were adamant they didn't want to get this vaccine, it would then lead to vacancies that would be very difficult to fill. Do you think that's a legitimate concern? I think there's lots of, you know, concerns about COVID causing vacancies if suddenly we're seeing outbreaks again, right? Because you're going to lose staff as well if people aren't vaccinated and you're starting to see outbreaks through your facilities. So that's also a major concern. Um, So I think those things can be addressed. And I think what's most important is to remember that we have a duty to the public and the people we serve to keep them safe. And it's very clear that we cannot do that unless all healthcare workers are vaccinated. We've talked about this in the past with nurses in this province as well. There was actually a case, there was action taken when nurses were fighting back against wearing masks for nurses that chose not to get the flu shot, and they were successful in that. So we've seen cases before where there's been pushback to mandatory vaccine. Do you think there would be less so given what we're dealing with with this pandemic? 
I do think so. You know, I think COVID-19 is an unprecedented global health emergency on a scale that we have never seen and, and the impact across the population. You know, it's really who, who in Canada hasn't been impacted by this pandemic. So I think the scale of it is different. I think the infectiousness of COVID-19 is worse. It's a much more serious disease and it's, it's shut down really the whole world. So I think the scale of the impact that we're talking about is much different. And I think that's why mandatory vaccination in this case is a very reasonable thing to ask for. And it's the clear, logical next step in getting us through this and to avoid a fourth wave. And just to be clear, if people are hearing the phrase and hearing you use the phrase mandatory vaccination, we're talking about mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers. So the choice there would be, it's fine if you don't want to get vaccinated. Well, it's not fine, but you, you can still make that choice not to get vaccinated. But if you make that choice, you can't work in healthcare. That's correct. Where do you go from here with this then? Because again, uh, Dr. Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry in this province uh, addressed this at one of the recent news conferences saying she had little patience for healthcare workers who didn't, who could get vaccinated and chose not to, and that there will be consequences as far as having to wear PPE, perhaps not being able to work in certain areas of healthcare. Uh, It sounds like your group and the Nurses Association uh, thinks that doesn't go far enough. I agree. I think, you know, the science is clear. The way to prevent COVID-19 is through vaccination. The vaccines, they are safe. They're efficacious. They're probably the best vaccines we've ever seen. Um, so there's really no justification for why people would not be vaccinated at this point. And healthcare workers, which is obviously the group we're talking about today, they must be vaccinated to create safe spaces for patients and, and to keep both the healthcare system and the healthcare workforce functional and, and to allow our patients to access care in a safe environment. I, there's just no question that's the science and that's what needs to happen. Who would actually make that call? I know in what was put out today, it was your organization as well as the Canadian Nurses Association uh, calling on all levels of government and employers to implement strategies that decrease barriers to accessing vaccine, improving vaccine acceptance. But if we did move to a model that for healthcare workers, vaccine for COVID-19 is mandatory, who would actually make that decision and make that change? That would likely come through the health authorities. So, of course, that would need to be both a provincial and territorial mandate. And then from there, it would move down into the health authorities that would then be working with their different institutions that come under their purview and working uh, with their staff to put this in place. Because again, Dr. Henry in this province, I think it was at the same news conference, talked about businesses. She was talking more about nightclubs, places where people Mm -hmm. congregate, saying it's absolutely up to the business owner. If they want to bring in a policy that patrons have to be vaccinated, they could do so. Could individual healthcare providers or health centers, could they do it in a piecemeal approach, saying we are a healthcare facility that requires vaccination? I think what we're really looking for here is leadership to say this is mandatory across the health system. I think, you know, the problem with a piecemeal approach is the lack of consistency that would be much more challenging how it would be applied. I think what what Canadians expect from us is, is to say, look, we know we are accountable to you. We want to create a safe place for you to be, regardless of the health facility where you're accessing care. So I think our, our opinion would strongly be that this needs to be something that's rolled out across the board. And uh, timeline, I'm guessing with the variants where they are now, it would be uh, ASAP or do you have a timeline on when you would like to see this? 
Absolutely. You know, I think the sooner the better. You know, modeling that's coming out of the Public Health Agency of Canada is showing that we are on the cusp of a fourth wave with the Delta variant. And really, this is a race against time. You know, what's clear is with the variants, you need to be double vaccinated for that to be effective. And that takes time, right? If we were to start, if you're unvaccinated today, you're at least six weeks from being protected fully uh, by the time you've received both your vaccines. So I think the sooner we do this, the more chance we have of averting a fourth wave going into fall uh, and, and, and then making sure that, you know, people are safe. But also the impact of COVID is beyond, of course, just the healthcare setting. It has impacts on schools, children, uh, vulnerable people who maybe can't legitimately be vaccinated. And I think we all have that duty to each other to keep each other safe. And right now, the way to do that is through vaccine. Right now, there's enough available for everyone. And the time is now for everyone to step up and be vaccinated. And I think as, as healthcare professionals, we need to be leading in that direction. Uh, do you think there's any pushback or there's reluctancy now as well as we see some provinces take away uh, COVID-19, the protocols as far as contact tracing and open things up? Is there an idea then that things are okay or that we're already at the rates that are, that are making an impact and that it's not necessary? Well, I think what we know is that we aren't there. Uh, when you look at modeling from other countries where there's a higher rate of vaccination than Canada, they're still seeing outbreaks of the Delta variant in groups of unvaccinated people. Um, you know, I think we've been fortunate right now. Numbers have gone down. And of course, everyone's excited that some of the public health restrictions have been lifted. And that's great. And that's where we want to stay. But it's quite clear the only way we're going to be able to stay there is by increasing our rate of vaccination. And if we don't do that, what I predict will happen is we're going to see a fourth wave and we're going to be back in lockdown and back with these broad reaching public health restrictions because we are going to start to see our hospitals filling up. You know, all you need to do is look into other countries like the United States and that's what's happening. So, you know, I think, of course, we're all excited that some of these things seem to be improving, but we can't be naive to think that we're it's over yet. COVID is not yet done. Um, but it could be if everyone gets the vaccine. All right, that music is a hint to what we're going to be talking about. I understand this is not the most important topic of the day, but it is something I've seen more and more of, and I've seen and heard more people complaining about it. So we are going to talk outdoor etiquette, especially if you are in a park or a beach and in a public space where there are people around you, where we are supposed to get along and be neighborly, be considerate of others. And we're talking about this today. We're coming off a long weekend where a lot of people spent a lot of time outdoors. I want to just quickly explain what I saw yesterday. I tweeted out a picture of the sunset. I was lucky enough to be at the dog beach last night, taking in the beautiful sunset, found a great place to sit with the dogs. But to get there, I passed by one vehicle where the owner was in the back of the vehicle, had the truck tailgate down and was playing a stereo, blasting it. So you had to get a pretty good distance to get away from his music. Then I came upon another guy who had brought out his drums and was sitting on the beach playing his drums very loud, got past him, got to another group sitting on the beach, blasting their small portable speaker with some kind of techno music and smoking on the beach, which is a whole other ball game because smoking's prohibited on the beaches. And as I'm looking at the rules, so is amplified music. So my question is, is it okay to go to a public place, a park, a beach, a place where others are trying to enjoy their evening as well and blast your music, be so loud 
that it is impossible for people to not hear it. What is the proper etiquette? Because it seems like more and more people are doing this. And imagine the chaos if we all did this. Let's bring in Lisa Orr. Lisa is an etiquette expert and is joining us on the line now. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What are your thoughts on this and going into public places and playing loud music? Gosh, I think... I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there around how the way that you express your music with other people, it, it just it just wasn't very thoughtful. That story where you're telling about the, the different people who are playing all these different kinds of music, it sort of turns to this cacophony of sound. And it's really hard to enjoy these public spaces. And the point is, it is supposed to be a public space, space where everyone can enjoy their time. And if you take it over with your music in a way that's not subtle, and we all know what that, there is a way to do it. Um, but if it's overwhelming, then it really takes away from everyone's enjoyment. And to your point, if everyone was doing it, wow, that would be, I mean, an epically awful <laughs> afternoon walking through the park, um, especially since we all have quite different music tastes. Um, so and I, and I think obviously, I mean, to your point, it is, it's, it's not allowed for a reason as well. It just always, and maybe it shouldn't, but it always just surprises me that people can do this and see people walking by. And it's like they don't have a care in the world or don't even understand the idea of being considerate to others because clearly your music is blasting. I mean, people can't honestly think that everybody wants to hear their music. I do think sometimes it's an act of rebellion, right? Sometimes it is, I am upset or I'm, I'm trying to make a statement and I'm going to play my music really loud and you can't stop me, right? There is that kind of, kind of, uh, I don't even know, kind of punk rockness about it to just say, I am going to make my music heard. Um, and I, and I, like in, in sort of a form of protest against regulation in any format. But I think, you know, once you've kind of gotten over that, and there is, there's so many ways, it, I'm a music lover, it's not to say that I don't enjoy music, but there are so many ways for me to enjoy my music and others to enjoy their music, especially with new technology, that means that we don't have to make everyone experience it for us to experience it. And I think now that, especially now, like it's not like back in my day when we had a boombox and you could make, you know, that was the only way that you could hear sound. Um, you know, there's so many other ways that you can do it and, and, and be considerate of others. Yeah, there's this, this great new invention called headphones. I, they're amazing. I know we should tell people about them. <laughs> do, do you think people is? Do you see people becoming less considerate, or are there other examples of this as well that people have kind of forgotten what the good etiquette is? I think so. I would say that particularly, kind of in our post-COVID world, that there is. Um, I don't want to call it an anger. Maybe a little bit of hostility. There is this feeling of I've been trapped inside for so long that I'm going to go outside and do whatever I want to do because I haven't been allowed to do anything for so long that I'm now going to do anything. So I think there is this kind of intensified emotion of kind of being able to do what you want to do when you haven't been able to do it. And I think we've been, you know, there is, because we have maybe, even though social media makes us more connected because we are less connected in person, I do see a little bit more of kind of people being inconsiderate of others while we're in person because we've gotten used to that sort of behavior online. Hmm, interesting. And I guess that's something too, if we have kind of been in our own homes, whether it's been working from home and maybe you play your music working from home, is it that people have forgotten that once we're back out in person, there is this whole idea that we need to be considerate of one another? I think sometimes it's that people are so kind of exhausted, traumatized, all of the terrible things they've been through 
they sort of don't care. <laughs> so I think that's part of what's happened. Um, but we, I, I have faith in our community that we will get back to it. I think people will, um, you know, once they've kind of gotten over the initial need to show that they are controlling their environment again, that it will, that it will kind of subside. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's just part of what happened. I think it's, that's why we're seeing this intensity. But it, I think through, you know, it's always been an issue. This is, it just, I think you do see peaks and valleys of the, the kind of real disrespect for others, depending on what's going on in the world. What is the proper etiquette then, or, or is there one when even dealing with that? I mean, for me last night, I just went and I kept walking until I found a spot where I couldn't hear all of the, the numerous people that were playing music. But is there ever a time or is it, and I guess maybe it's, you got to figure out who you're dealing with, but is there a proper etiquette in asking somebody to turn the music off or explaining to them that their music is annoying to others? So it rarely goes well. <laughs> so I would, I, I really, I think the tough part is when someone is, I mean, we all know, right, how, how loudly we can play our music and not kind of disrupt others. And so when someone's already playing their music loudly, I think their intention is to disrupt you. So if you go and say something, that was their hope in the first place. So you're, you're likely to end up in, an, in a confrontation. And that's not fun for anybody. Like your, your peaceful walk is over. Now everyone's yelling. Everyone's upset. So I think your strategy of saying, you know what, I don't know what's going on in that person's world today. They need loud music. I'm going to keep walking. Um, I think if you were in a neighborhood where that was happening all the time and you had a neighbor who was doing that or if you noticed, I mean, that's when, you know, community associations, there are, you know, there are bylaw enforcement officers for a reason. So, you know, that's where you can kind of rely on the government agencies that have set up those rules to ask them to enforce because each individual citizen, it's really tough for us to it doesn't go well. It's really difficult to have that conversation and have it be successful. Yeah, I would imagine there wouldn't be too many scenarios where the response would be, oh, sorry, I didn't realize my music was so loud. Let me turn that down for you. Yeah, absolutely. What else do people do? Or have you seen any other changes as far as people just not or kind of losing that consideration of others? And, and I like that you said, hopefully we're going to get that back or it's going to swing back the other way again. But where else do you, do, have you maybe seen things fall apart a bit? I think I think it's pretty broad, right? It's in our it, so many aspects in terms of how we interact with others. I mean, I don't can't remember the last time someone's held a door open for me, or that I've held one open for someone else, um, because we're all kind of afraid of each other and irritated at each other and irritated. Like it's, it, there is um, kind of a collective hostility that is around, and uh, and because we're scared and upset, and and so I think that's. Um, I think that's sort of part of what's going on. So that kind of scared, upset feeling is you're seeing people don't necessarily give each other room um, when they're walking on the sidewalk or on transit, um, you know, in stores. People are, uh, you know, kind of a little bit out for themselves and because it's been such a traumatic time. But I, you know, I, I do think that people, as the, as the trauma recedes and as, as things will eventually improve, that we will come back. Because that's, that's something we value in our society is that we... I, mean, I think especially in Canada, it's a place where we look after each other. And I think that will come back. All right. Let's leave that on that positive note. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. We started the show today talking about that absolutely horrific attack that took place in a park in Surrey this past weekend. Video has been circulated showing the attack against two grandmothers and some children in that park. A very 
well, racist, not very racist, it's racist and hateful attack. Garbage was thrown at the group. Horrible things were said. And one of the things to come of this is as it is being shared, more and more people are speaking out, talking about how absolutely unacceptable this is. And again, we talked about this in the first hour of the show. Our show contributor, John Jang, is now taking a look at a rally that is being held and what else is being done to support those who were attacked. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. Now, earlier on the show, you discussed the apparent racist attack that took place at Aspen Park in Surrey over the weekend when a group of grandmothers and kids were targeted and even had garbage thrown at them while receiving verbal racist abuse. That video is starting to go viral and has been shared many times over. Well, we know now that a rally will be held tonight at that exact same park in Surrey as an entire community comes together in a show of solidarity. Doris Ma is with the Stand with Asians Coalition, the group that is organizing the rally tonight, and she spoke with me earlier this afternoon detailing how she had heard what happened over the weekend. Well, I actually heard it on the news on Saturday morning uh, on the radio, and when I first heard it, I just could not believe uh, what had happened. Uh, and uh, and when I heard the news, it wasn't talking about uh, the garbage involved and, and children involved like that. So I read on the news and I found out that there were uh, there was a uh, Caucasian couple uh, threw garbage on the children first, uh, and then the grandmothers who were just watching the children got involved. And this is when they had uh, very racist, uh, racially motivated slurs against them, basically saying that uh, uh, this is not India, you need to go back to India. This is Canada, you need to speak English. Uh, and uh, what is uh, significant about this case is there is a pattern here. The pattern is uh, racist people tend to target children, elderly and women, and of course, racialized. Uh, And this is something that we need to uh, pay attention to that. This is Canada speak English. Such ignorant and hateful words when you consider that Canada is technically a bilingual country. But more than that, it's a diverse and multicultural country that has largely welcomed so many people from so many different places. To me, Doris, I mean, self-explanatory, but this is unacceptable in this country. Absolutely. And I, I don't think anybody can make a Uh, a simple remark like this lightly. And in fact, Canada was not originally English, right? We actually, and let me begin just just by acknowledging that I'm a settler and I'm an immigrant of this unceded ancestral unsurrendered lands of this Coast Salish peoples, especially the Kwantan, Kedzu, Samyamo, Hakumi, and Skomish-speaking peoples. And our efforts of anti-racism must work towards justice on this stolen land that through truth and reconciliation and decolonization. And for this Caucasian couple to say, this is Canada and we speak English, it's wrong. There's fundamentally wrong in their mindset that this Canada belongs to us and we speak English. And so uh, that undermines the truth reconciliation and our uh, uh, commitment to decolonization. Because these people believe that this country belongs to them, belong to English-speaking people. But this country does not belong to you, does not belong to me. It belongs to the First Nations people. 
Very well said. I I'm wondering also, Doris, has the Stand with Asians Coalition reached out to the family members? I know uh, Sahiba Senga, who is the granddaughter of one of the women who were involved and targeted in this attack, she had spoken with Global News. And I'm wondering, you know, what has that communication been like when you're trying to put up the rally that's going to happen tonight? Well, on Saturday, we put, the, put together quickly a WhatsApp group uh, with community organizers and, uh, and such. That's including the granddaughter, Saiba. Uh, remarkable 21-year-old young woman. And she has spoken up. And I felt so proud of her because she willing to stand up and says, enough is enough. Even though this happened to my grandmother. I mean, it could happen to my grandmother. It could happen to anybody. And the fact that she spoke up and uh, speak to the fact that, you know, racialized people are saying that enough is enough. Uh, and one attack on one racialized person. I'm not South Asian, but I, I could feel it because all of us, many of us racialized people have experienced racism. And this is triggering to all of us that, you know what, we all have experience. And this is why the Stem Asians Coalition is coming out. We are, members are coming out and, and to, to show and to signal uh, to the families that even though we're not, Asian, we're not salvations, even though we do have salvations members, that we're here with you and stand with you and behind you, beside you, supporting you. And, and I think this is a very strong, important message that we want to get out tonight. The rally tonight will be held at Aspen Park in Surrey, where the incident originally took place. Uh, do you have any concerns that certain individuals may try to come and disturb the rally? I don't have any worries about that. I, uh, I think uh, if there are people who counter a rally, I think the most important thing, we have to get the truth out. The truth of the matter is this country is a diverse, multicultural, inclusive country. And there's no place for racism, discrimination, and hate. Even though if there is a counter rally, this is a free country, we have uh, freedom to assembly. But I believe the loudest voice is the voice that speaks the truth. Very well said. She is Doris Ma. She's with the Stand with Asians Coalition, who are putting on a rally tonight. Aspen Park in Surrey, 7 o'clock. And Doris, one last question. Is this open to the public? Can others come down tonight to, again, join you in a show of solidarity? So right now, uh, we know that there will be about 50 people show up, and that's the limit for the uh, uh, provincial uh, uh, COVID uh, protocol. But again, because the news have gone out, I have so many people across the country. They couldn't be here uh, in person. They messaged me and said, Doris, go for it. Hold up the Sandwich Asian sign because we're with you in spirit. I have people in uh, around cities wanted to show up and show support. Uh, the, the support is overwhelming, John. It's unbelievable because there's really anger, all of us, because this is unacceptable. And I just wanted to point out the fact that uh, the couple has apologized, and there were questions to us. It's like, why do you need to protest? Uh, well, by the way, this is not a protest. This is a rally uh, against racism. Uh, why, are we, why are we going, even though the couple has apologized? I have to say, apology cannot undo the harm or the emotional trauma that has been inflicted on these children and these seniors. Because I heard from the families, the children were telling their parents that they, they, they couldn't sleep at night because this is their favorite park. This is the park 
that their grandparents take them all the time. And now they're scared to go out. And even though they heard, oh, yeah, these people have apologized, but the emotional scar is already there. And this is why we have to be there tonight to rally, to empower them and say, there's no place here for racism and discrimination. And you should not have to fear to go to your place uh, because this place belongs to everyone and it should be a safe place for everyone. Love it. Uh, she is Doris Ma with the Stand with Asians Coalition. Doris, thank you so much for speaking with us here today. Thank you, John.